Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm John Hartgen, ABI's Public Affairs Manager. Today's podcast features remarks delivered by Harvey Miller at the Alexander Pasquet Memorial Bankruptcy Seminar in Tampa, Florida. Miller, who has been called the most prominent Chapter 11 lawyer of all time, was the keynote for the first Pasquet Memorial Lecture. He is a partner in the New York City-based international law firm of Weil, Gottschall, and Manges, where he has served as a member of the firm's management committee for over 25 years. He created and developed the firm's preeminent business, finance, and restructuring department, specializing in reorganizing distressed business entities. Mr. Miller has represented the debtor in the nation's most significant Chapter 11 matters, including General Motors, Lehman Brothers Holdings, Texaco, Global Crossing, Sunbeam Corp, Bethlehem Steel, Continental Airlines, Eagle Pitcher, R.H. Macy, and many more. The list of cases represents virtually every industry, financial, manufacturing, retail, technology, automotive, energy, and transportation. The cases have involved the most challenging and novel legal issues, creative financing, and have been of global reach. From September 2002 to March 2007, he was a managing director and vice chairman of Greenhill & Co., an investment bank. He has taught as an adjunct or visiting professor at New York University Law School, Yale Law School, and at his alma mater, Columbia University School of Law. He is a member of the National Bankruptcy Conference and a fellow in the American College of Bankruptcy. Long prominent in efforts to promote sound bankruptcy laws, he currently serves as a member of ABI's Commission to Study the Reform of Chapter 11, a commission whose report to Congress and the public is due at the end of the year. Mr. Miller's remarks reflect on the profound impact bankruptcy law has had on financial renewal in America. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Good afternoon. It's a great privilege to speak at this conference, which which honors bankruptcy judge Alex Pasquet. Anyone who ever appeared before Judge Pasquet will remember that experience as often overwhelming, exceptional, and sometimes startling. Alex Pasquet made an indelible imprint on all that appeared before him. Unfortunately, I only had a few occasions to appear before Judge Pasquet. I remember the first occasion, representing a debtor and requesting some extraordinary relief. After listening to my plea, I was on the receiving end of a tirade from Judge Pasquet, but it did not have much effect on me, as I could not quite understand what he was saying. (laughs) For a moment, I thought he was addressing me in his native tongue, Hungarian. Then suddenly, as I was about to ask for a translator, he stopped, looked at his watch, and said, it's 3.45 p.m. I have an appointment. I must go. He literally leapt off the bench to the point his robes flew behind him, and there he was in white tennis shorts, 
tennis shoes, and onto his four o'clock tennis game. <laughs> Those instances aside, Alex Pasquet represented the best of what is the foundation of the United States as the land of opportunity. He came here as a refugee, worked extremely hard, and became an outstanding bankruptcy judge. His contributions to the enhancement of bankruptcy law, procedure, and administration are well established. He contributed, he contributed mightily to the ultimate enactment of the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978. He never hesitated to take positions in furtherance of the objectives of the Reform Act. Alex Pasquet set a high standard for bankruptcy judges. Now to my appearance today. As I look out at all of you and the challenge of cap capturing your attention, I am reminded of a dinner I attended several years ago in Washington, D.C., at which a large group of persons were being honored. As is sometimes normal in the Capitol, there was substantial drinking going on as the audience appeared to be bracing itself for sitting through the keynote address. The speaker's podium was set on the stage center. To the right of the podium was a very respected president of the organization that was sponsoring the dinner. The keynote speaker was introduced and he began his speech as he droned on in almost a monotone on the state of frogs as an endangered species. It became clear that the sponsor was distraught and was dil diligently working his way through a bottle of vodka. <clears throat> Things weren't going well, and the sponsor in the audience became more agitated as the speaker went on. Finally, the sponsor picked up the vodka bottle, waved it around his head, and threw it at the speaker. He missed. The bottle hit the chairman of the dinner, who was sitting on the other side of the podium. The chairman went down with blood streaming from above his right eye. The sponsor dropped to his, to his knees to assist the chairman and expressed his deep apologies. The day's chairman looked up and mumbled, please, do it again. I can still hear the son of a bitch. Well, fortunately, this is a non-alcoholic lunch, so I will move forward. The subject given to me is bankruptcy and restructuring through the prism of 50 years. You know, there are three stages to life. First, you're young, then you're middle-aged, then you're wonderful. I'm in the wonderful <laughs> stage. The subject that I have covers a multitude of areas that relate to our economy, the now global interconnected financial systems and markets, as well as the world of finance and politics, among others. To cover 50 years would consume the rest of this conference and I can't do it in my required time. It would require less than a minute per year. So I will speak of the highlights of bankruptcy reorganization and its history. Financial stability depends and relies upon the confidence of counterparties, creditors, customers, financial markets, etc. That the entity is creditworthy and sustainable. The issue is what to do when that confidence ev evaporates. Sometimes the ugly head of bankruptcy rises. And what is bankruptcy? A substantive, procedural, and collective process to resolve claims to the assets of a debtor that is unable to satisfy its obligation, obligations 
and whose assets may be insufficient to satisfy all legitimate claims. Although placed in an adversarial court-supervised administration, bankruptcy and reorganization cases are different. The cases encompass more of a socio-economic process that goes beyond the simple plaintiff-defendant scenario of litigation. It is a collective process that may involve hundreds of interested parties and the public interest. So let's look at bankruptcy and how it is reconciled to a changing economy. When I look out at the audience here, I'm a little amazed because the first conference of what was then referees in bankruptcy that I ever attended in the mid-60s, there were less than 75 people at the conference. Only 20 judges were able to show up because they could not afford the airfare to Puerto Rico. And when I think of all the people that are now involved in this sector of the law, I find it somewhat amazing. But in any, any event, prior to the 1960s, bankruptcy, and particularly bankruptcy reorganization, that area was considered a substratum of commercial law, a small, arcane, undesirable practice area inhibited and inhabited, rather, allegedly by somewhat shady groups accused of feeding off the caucuses of failures. Bankruptcy carried an undesirable uh, stigma. Federal courts were shunned as too formalistic to assist in business cases. Debtor-creditor issues were resolved through the use of common law compositions, state court receiverships, and assignments for the benefit of creditors. Often, federal bankruptcy cases were only initiated for tactical reasons to access the avoidance powers under the former Bankruptcy Act. So what happened? The world began to change in the 60s. All of the restraints that occurred in the 1930s, the uh, New Deal legislation was starting to wear off, and the stock market was becoming a little bit more active. Americans were willing to buy stock once again. And we got into the go-go years of the 1960s. And the big drive was going public. And I can remember sitting in meetings where an underwriter would say to a client, if you could demonstrate to me that you have a million dollars of volume, I can take you public. I'm not interested in profits. Just tell me you have the volume. And in the 1960s, we began to see these small companies. And in my jurisdiction, we had the Garmin Center. And almost every company in the Garmin Center was undercapitalized. But they had a million dollars in volume. So they began to go public. This was a change in the economic environment. And there was a democratization of credit. Borrowing became more accessible. It resulted in more leveraged businesses and more distressed debt situations. Issues multiplied, and the number of creditors increased dramatically. And as these companies began to incur uh, liquidity problems and reorganization problems, you no longer could go and have a common law composition with 30 creditors. So the question was, what do we do now? We had a bankruptcy act originally adopted in 1898 and substantially amended by the Chandler Act of 1938, but it wasn't very much used in the context of reorganizations. So you have to go back and think about well, what can you do with chapters XI and chapter 10 uh, under that act? And could you use that for these companies that were now having trouble? And you have to think about what's the paradigm for reorganization? 
and you, you have to go back into the 30s and the so-called Great Depression. And what was happening in the Great Depression were businesses were going out, a new president was elected, and the question was, what do you do with these businesses? What do you do with the men who are standing on the corners in New York selling apples and fa factories that are closed? And a group of practitioners, academics, and legislators began to think about the railroad reorganizations of the 19th century. What, was, what happened in those cases? And if you remember what happened after the Civil War, everybody wanted to build a railroad from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was sort of like building a global network for, the, uh, for uh, internet transactions. And like everything else in the United States, it's based on a model. You model something and the underlying thing is, if I build it, they will come. Like most models, they don't work. Uh, we do it today with computers. I don't know how they did it in the 19th century with an abacus, but they did it. And suddenly, everybody was building a railroad. The federal government was giving land grants to build a railroad, but nobody took into account that there were six or seven people building the same type of railroad, running from the East Coast to the West Coast. Just like when global, uh, uh, some of the global marketeers of internets were building out their networks, they always mischaracterized the amount of time that would be taken. They forgot it takes a long time to cross the Rockies and et cetera. And ultimately, they could not service the debt. So what do you do with a railroad that is now distressed and can't pay its debt? Well, a creditor could go to and get a judgment and go and levy on the judgment. What do you levy on? You levy on six feet of rail. What do you get for six feet of rail? Nothing. So somebody came up with the idea and said, you know, there's a difference between going concern value and liquidation value. And if we can keep these railroads together and find a way to keep them operating, they will have more value than you can possibly realize in liquidation. And that was the beginning of the equity receivership actions that started in the district court in Connecticut where a creditor's bill was filed, no defense, the court appointed a receiver, that receiver took over, they moved the case to the next district until they went across the United States and every district appointed the same receiver. And as it got more refined, the, court, the federal court said, well, the first receiver is the receiver and the first court has jurisdiction. And they essentially had an automatic stay by virtue of a court order. And the concept was, if we can keep this entity together and give it a reasonable period of time to seek reorganization and have the creditors participate through the use of protective committees, we can achieve a great deal of value. And it's out of that equity receivership, that railroad equity receivership, that the concept, the reorganization paradigm evolved. And within that, those, a lot of those cases got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided on absolute priority, due, due process, due notice, a solicitation of votes, etc. So in the 1930s, when the Depression was raging, this, the group of academics, legislators, and practitioners said, we need something like that. And there was emergency legislation in the early 30s, which ultimately led to the Chandler Act of 1938. And the Chandler Act adopted the reorganization paradigm. The only problem with it was that it adopted two different chapters for business reorganization. 
Chapter 11 was de designed for mom-and-pop organizations. Could only affect unsecured creditors. Could not affect equity. Could not affect secured creditors. Uh, chapter 10, which originally was proposed by the educators and so on, did not meet the satisfaction of William O. Douglas, who was then the chairman of the SEC. And he said, we can't trust those people to draft this section. So the SEC drafted 10. And 10 was a called corporate reorganization, was a very comprehensive statute. And it was many, many provisions, and the Securities and Exchange Commission was a party to that action. And nothing could happen in a Chapter 10 without the SEC approving it. It also required the appointment, the mandatory appointment, of a trustee if the liabilities exceeded $250,000. And very often in the cases, there was more than one trustee. Very often there were three trustees. And it meant, because of the mandatory appointment of the trustee, that the board of directors and the CEO of the company were put out to pasture. And that was never very popular with any company. So Chapter 10, which was really intended for public co corporations, was not very well used. When we began to have problems in the 1960s, we faced the issue of going to a board of directors or going to management and saying, you really need to be restructured. You really need to be reorganized. And the only place you can do that really is in the federal bankruptcy system. And the question was always, well, what happens to us? Well, if we go to Chapter 10, you're out. And there'll be a big investigation. Well, there are very few boards that like that. The first question is, how much do you know policy insurance do we have? Uh, so the use of Chapter 10 really was the minimus. And as we sat around thinking about this, the question was, could we use Chapter 11? First place, in the Southern District of New York, it was very attractive because it was one of the districts which recognized the debtor in possession. There was no automatic appointment of a receiver. There was no trustee. If you went across the river to Brooklyn, you got a receiver. You went across the river to New Jersey, you got maybe five or six receivers. Uh, sorry, Rick. Uh, but the Southern District was a terrific venue because the debtor in possession could operate. And then, if you, if you read the Chandler Act carefully, it really said you were entitled to a reasonable opportunity to seek reorganization. And while there was no automatic stay, the courts were very free in granting an order in joining all kinds of almost the same thing as you get in the automatic stay. But what was the bankruptcy court in those days? Probably most of you never heard of a referee in bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court in those days was run by a referee who was appointed for five years by a district court judge. They had, uh, there were part-time referees also. There were referees who worked two days a week and practiced three days a week. One of the courts I appeared in, and a part-time referee actually had a sink in the courtroom uh, that he used for other purposes. It was a court that was really considered just plain support personnel. Everything could be reviewed by the district court. It was in the transition under the rules to calling referees in bankruptcy a bankruptcy judge or bankruptcy judges. And our interpretation of Chapter 11 is, well, you can't affect equity, but if the charter provides for it, you're going to issue more equity. Then you can dilute the existing equity holders. 
and Your Honor or Your Worship, if you will enter an order staying the secured creditors, well, we can deal with them if, if they can be stayed. And the, court, and the judge would say, well, is that constitutional? Well, there is a Supreme Court case going way back into the 30s that says you can hold off remedial rights for a period of time. What we found and what we did in those days was expand what Chapter 11 was intended to do, well beyond anything Congress ever thought about, if it did think about anything. <laughs> so what happened? In 1960, there were only 715 Chapter 10 and Chapter 11 arrangement cases filed in the United States. In 1970, there were 1,400. In 1975, the W.T. Grant Company filed under Chapter 11. This was the first billion-dollar Chapter 11 case. Grant was the so-called Tiffany of retailing. It had over 1,100 stores throughout the United States. It owed a syndicate of banks $640 million. In 1975 dollars, that's a lot of money. It owed trade creditors $400 million and then all other kinds of uh, liabilities. That brought attention to what was going on in bankruptcy. And the Chapter 11 cases were becoming very, very popular because we had judges who understood that this was more than just a plaintiff and defendant. And at that time in history, almost all the debt was unsecured. So Chapter 11 became the choice for restructuring. We had a lot of problems with the SEC. The SEC first took the position, if it's a public company, it has to go into Chapter 10. Those cases were litigated, and ultimately the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the way it's going to be decided. The courts have to look at the needs to be served. And if the needs can be served in Chapter 11, you can stay in Chapter 11. So if you got the creditors committee to agree with you that Chapter 11 was a better format, your chances of staying in Chapter 11 were very high. And then you didn't have to deal with the SEC. Then the SEC took the position, if you have public bondholders, you must be in Chapter 10. Same result in the Supreme Court. So Chapter 11 got very popular. In 1978, we got the Reform Act, the Bankruptcy Reform Act. And the Bankruptcy Reform Act took into consideration what was happening in the Chapter 11 cases throughout the country. And to a large extent, they were successful. Businesses were being reorganized, going back into the economic world as viable entities. So in the 1978 Bankruptcy Reform Act, what the legislature did is they consolidated to one business reorganization chapter. They adopted a lot of the procedures and not procedures, substantive issues of Chapter 10, but they also adopted the context of the debtor in possession. The presumption is that the debtor can continue as a debtor in possession. That made a big change. They also incorporated a relaxed, if you want to call it, absolute priority rule, which made, which made reorganization under this chapter viable. What had happened in old Chapter 11 in, the, uh, in 1959, if I recall correctly, the absolute priority rule was taken out of Chapter 11. And Chapter 11 became very much more popular as a result of that because equity could retain its position. And Chapter 11, the debtor had exclusivity, Chapter XI, exclusivity forever. And that gave you economic leverage because you would say to the creditors, if you don't take my plan, 
then I'll convert it to ordinary liquidation and you'll end up getting zero. And that worked to a large extent. So the issues that came in the discussion about the Reform Act, there is a virtue to reorganization. Reorganization is more valuable than liquidation. And that's the underlying pre premise of the bankruptcy code. And the bankruptcy code, as it was adopted in 1978, universally supported by every sector in the, in the economy, by the banks, by the credit associations, uh, by the insurance companies. There was no opposition except in Congress, which did not want to make Article III judges out of the bankruptcy judges. So post-1978, Chapter 11 was a viable alternative, and it was geared to retaining and saving going concern value. And it incorporated a premise that every debtor, unless the facts demonstrated otherwise, was entitled to a reasonable opportunity to reorganize. And an underlying premise of Chapter 11 was reorganization is better than liquidation and rehabilitation is the philosophy. Well, something happened after the adoption of that principle. In 1980, there were 6,400 Chapter 11 cases. 1990, 20,800 20, cases. And throughout uh, the years subsequent to 1990, the volume of Chapter 11 cases increased dramatically. And the 1990s were the, the age of the debtor. And this was all due to the relaxation of the absolute priority rule. Uh, and things were fine. But something else was changing in the, in the economy. Debt trading. When bankruptcy rule uh, 3001 was changed and debt trading became in vogue, the man who discovered that debt is a commodity really changed the world because debt traders began buying claims, and that changed the dynamic. Uh, they had different objectives, different intentions than the an ordinary vendor or the ordinary uh, bank who had a relationship with the debtor. Uh, the global economy began to change, and with that, a contrary principle began to emerge, maximization of recoveries for creditors. So you had two potentially different principles at work, the principle of rehabilitation and the principle of maximization of creditor recoveries. Sometimes they conflict. And with the growth of debt trading and the introduction of hedge funds into the arena, the dynamic began to change. Uh, but nevertheless, Chapter 11 continued to be a viable alternative to liquidation. So in the 1980s, as a result of the LBO mania, we had Federated Department Stores, R.H. Macy, TWA1, Southland Corporation, Global Marine, National Gypsum, Drexel Burnham, and Olympia and York. Also, massive tox tort toxic tort litigation precipitated Johns Manville, A.H. Robbins, and others. This resulted in an expansive uh, power of bankruptcy judges to use their equitable powers to deal with situations which were not ever contemplated by Congress. Nobody in the 10 years of study that resulted in the Reform Act ever thought of asbestos litigation. 
when John's manual was filed, there were no precedents. And it took the ingenuity of a very dedicated bankruptcy judge to come up with solutions. And I always wondered about one of his solutions. There was always a question in the Manville cases of people who had been infected by asbestos but had not yet manifested any disease or injury. Judge Lithlin came up with the idea of appointing a special representative for the unmatured claimants. And he appointed a very distinguished lawyer. And I remember one conference we were having and we were trying to deal with what could go into a plan of reorganization. And the special representative said, I'm not sure I like that. And Judge Lifflin said, why don't you go outside and consult with your client? <laughs> and he did. And he came back and he said, after consultation, I agree. Uh, but the, all these cases demonstrated the things you could do in a Chapter 11 under the Reform Act, environmental issues. LTV, Bethlehem Steel, Alice Chalmers, all these Rust Belt industries that had enormous environmental problems. The bankruptcy court was able to deal with them. Sometimes it took a long time, but they were able to deal with them and come up with plans which allowed all a part of those companies to go back into the economy. Airlines, Braniff, Continental, twice, Pan Am, liquidated, Eastern Airlines, liquidated. United Airlines, Delta Airlines, Northwest Airlines, U.S. Airline, Airways, and finally American Airlines. Uh, there was a growth in prestige and recognition of this area. We were no longer treated as a substrater of the bar. The references to the underbar had disappeared. And what, had, what did they have to do with? It was very good to be involved in these cases. The fees were pretty good. The spirit of economy that was embedded in the 1898 Act was eliminated in connection with the Reform Act. And administrative fees began to expand. Connie Duberstein, who's a bankruptcy judge in New York, had a great sense of humor, once made a speech, and he said, you know why Wall Street's involved in Chapter 11 cases now? They found that there's gold in them, the hills. <laughs> so mid-70s to the 2000s, was the zenith of the age of the debtor. Uh, the Reform Act was intended, and you've got to remember this if you look in the legislative history, it was intended to encourage uh, the commencement of Chapter 11 cases before the, the seeds of reorganization wilted. So if you look at Chapter 3, all of those administrative powers were intended to enhance the ability to do a reorganization. So you understand the underlying philosophy. So what happened? starting with the amendments in 1984 and right through that dreadful amendment in 2005, there's been a contraction of debtors' rights with clawbacks in favor of creditors. The special interest legislation has grown with every single amendment to the Bankruptcy Code, and each one of those amendments narrows the prospects of doing a classic reorganization. Uh, the legislative process is dominated by highly paid and skilled lobbyists representing the special interests. The amount of money that is paid to lobbyists today is extraordinary. And there is, there is this interesting factor that people who retire from the Congress simply don't go home, they become lobbyists. Forty-two percent of the people retiring from the House of Representatives stay on K Street as lobbyists. 50% of the senators who retire. 
So what is the changing Chapter 11 environment? While it was intended as a dynamic process, as a dynamic process, it's changing with the economic world. The 21st century began with a wave of large cases infused with claims of fraud and other misdeeds, Enron, WorldCom, and Global Crossing. The continuing expansion of debt trading and its impact on control and governance of restructurings and Chapter 11 cases has been, to some, to some point of views, uh, detrimental. There's been a growth of activist investors and hedge funds. The shadow banking system is operating. Uh, and very and most significant is the emergence of the secured creditor. The changing global economy and access to credit resulting in severe over-leveraging and international competition has ex exacerbated the problem. And it was demonstrated by the financial crisis of 2008 and the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Bankruptcy courts have evolved into auction forums. And the role of the DIP has been marginalized. The DIP financier has become the control entity. So in the last 50 years, there have been some defining events. The enhancement and elevation of the bankruptcy court as a serious court is now questioned by Stern v. Marshall. The trading of claims has dramatically changed the way Chapter 11 cases are administered. Secured creditors predominate. You can't run a Chapter 11 case unless you are financed. Chapter 11, as I've often told clients, is not for paupers. So when you look at the scenario of Chapter 11 cases, you find the DIP lender is basically controlling the case. You can't get financing unless you put your eldest son up as a hostage. And if you look at the retail cases, almost every single retail case has a provision by the financier that if you can't refinance me in 30 or 60 days, you have to start the liquidation process. What is that tied into? That's tied into the limitation on the time to assume or reject the contract uh, or an unexpired lease of real property. The financier looks at the inventory. He doesn't see skirts and blouses and so on. He sees dollar signs. And if this is not going to be successful, I have to, I have to liquidate that inventory. I have to liquidate that inventory in the stores. And that's a long process. So if you can't refinance me, I want you to start the liquidation. And I would say in, in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, there hasn't really been a successful retail case except one that was owned by a family and they put up a lot of new money. The secured creditors, much like in the early part of the 1960s, control the process. The Reform Act was adopted to deal with unsecured credit. That's what it was directed to. Today, almost somehow, somebody, maybe at one of these forums or conferences, somebody introduced the banks and commercial institutions to the fact that the Uniform Commercial Code had been adopted many years earlier. And it's pretty easy to file a, finan a financing statement. So we find our cases where everything is leaned up. And when everything is leaned up, you can't get other financing. 364D priming, it really doesn't work. While you're trying to prime, the patient is on the gurney in the operating room bleeding to death. So priming is not a real alternative. Uh, so 360, the 363 option arose. 
And 363 has become a fairly normal standard. I listened to the uh, breakout session uh, uh, on business and the statement that the courts are getting a little bit more apprehensive about 363 and notice and all of those requirements, and I agree with that. But there are cases, I mean, there are cases that require expedition. And one of those cases was Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was a global company interconnected to so many different administrations and uh, jurisdictions that it was hard to tell uh, it probably was intergalactical. <laughs> I could st stand here and tell you the, my story of perils on the weekend before the filing at the Federal Reserve Bank, but I'd probably get sued. Uh, the, the revisionist history as to what happened to Lehman is something that I won't go into. But what happened? Here you had this humongous company that files a Chapter 11. It's a financial company. It has a certain level of businesses. They're very fragile. Lehman has not one dollar. The Fed turned it off and said not one penny for Lehman. The Federal Reserve would not allow Lehman to borrow. It's, Sunday night, it's Monday morning, 2 a.m. in the morning, the petition is filed, and everybody looks at everybody and says, now what do we do? How are we going to work tomorrow? Well, at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., Barclays calls up and says, well, we can't take the whole company because your government would not sponsor it. But we'd still like to buy the North American capital markets business. All right, let's have a meeting. So we have a meeting, and we're told we will only buy it if we can close tomorrow. So you say to the English solicitors and barristers, that doesn't happen in the United States. Well, it's, it, this, this asset only has value to us as a going concern. If it is not operating and time passes, we're not interested. So what do you do in those situations? Well, we sat around and somebody raised the question of 363. Could you do a 363 sale in this context? And we negotiated, and out of the goodness of their hearts, the English said, We'll give you till Friday. Well, then you start thinking, well, we need a stalking horse. Well, you know, there's never going to be a stalking horse, but we have to go through the motions. So we prepare papers to set sale procedures. We want, to, we want the sale on Friday. We go to court on Wednesday. We, there hadn't been any communication with the bankruptcy judge up until that point in time. And we're on the way down to the courthouse and the U.S. trustees appointed a creditors committee. And the creditors committee counsel called and tells me, you can't do this. We won't agree to it. So we get the, I said, look, I'm not going to argue with you. Tell the judge. We get down to the courthouse, and Judge Peck calls a conference. And he says, what's, what's the problem? And they said, we just got appointed. We have to make uh, an investigation. And I said, well, you can make an investigation, but by the time you're finished, there'll be nothing left. And Judge Peck said, look, I'm not, I'm not deciding anything substantive. This is just a hearing to set sale procedures. And I'm going forward with the hearing. And you could put whatever you want on the record. So we had the hearing, and the judge said, when do you want to have the sale? I said, Friday. He looked at his watch and he said, that's only two days. Said, that's right, but if we don't have the sale on Friday, we're not going to have a sale. 
And he said, okay, I'm setting this down for sale hearing. I'm not predetermining it. And nobody has to file written objections. You can file them orally. You can file them by email. And I'll take objections right up to the start of the hearing and maybe to the conclusion of the hearing. Well, all I can tell you is four Blackberries burned out with the objections. And they were coming in right up to the hearing. And it was an extraordinary hearing. It was an evidentiary hearing. There were witnesses. There were the objections were coming in. And everybody had an opportunity to examine. The deal itself was changing by the minute because the markets were changing. So the price was fluid. But it was an opportunity, one, to get cash to run whatever was going to be left of Lehman. And by that time, we already had 80 foreign proceedings, insolvency proceedings. We had receivers, trustees grabbing all of the foreign assets. The computer systems were down. You couldn't tell what was what. And at that hearing, we put on our expert. We put on the president of Lehman. We explained the differences. And the hearing went from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 12.01 a.m. of that Friday into Saturday morning without a break. We were lucky. We had a bankruptcy judge who did not have any problems. <laughs> At the conclusion of the hearing, and since my time is up, if you want to hear the rest of my speech, come back next year. But uh, <laughs> at 12.01, Judge Peck was still on the bench, and he said, give me two minutes. And he went into chambers, came out, and he gave his bench opinion. And he said, it's my job to do what the law permits in the exercise of discretion. This week, more than any other week since I was appointed to the bench, I have felt the awesome power of this job, of this job, and it is now Saturday morning. I've given a lot of thought to the objections, and I categorize them in my mind and consider carefully whether it is permissible for me as a judge in this district to approve a transaction this momentous on such an extraordinary fast, extraordinarily fast schedule. And I have given consideration to the due process considerations that have been articulated in objections both orally and in writing. And I have concluded that this is really not a question of due process being denied. This is a question of due process being pursued in good faith by all parties to the transaction, even the objectors. It is a testament to the importance of this transaction that this courtroom is still packed at 12.15 a.m., I have to approve this transaction because it is the only available transaction. I believe that one of the remarkable aspects of our bankruptcy code, as it has evolved, is its remarkable flexi flexibility to different circumstances. And he goes on for another two pages. But what it demonstrates is that a bankruptcy court can respond to emergencies. And taking bankruptcy is a socioeconomic process. You have to have a court that is flexible that can understand the circumstances. And when you read cases like uh, Lou versus Siegel and 203 North LaSalle Street and Armstrong Industries, where the plain meaning rule, if there is such a thing, it's only in the eyes of Scalia, uh, can stop a process that makes sense for the country, 
for the creditors, it's somewhat disturbing. So in that context, because Sam is going to kill me if I don't say this, the ABI Commission on the Bankruptcy Laws. This is a commission that is earnestly trying to find out what would be the way to amend the Bankruptcy Code or to adopt a new bankruptcy law that would serve the nation in the context that we have a different economy, we have financing that is almost completely secured creditor-oriented, financing is very difficult, we have provisions in the Bankruptcy Code that don't work, we have all these safe harbors which have to be re-examined, and even the draftsmen of those safe harbors don't realize how broad they are. I am skeptical that the legislature, we can't go backwards, but I'm skeptical that the legislators, the way Congress is operating, will ever agree on a reasonable, rational bankruptcy code. In thinking about the environment of restructuring and reorganizations and how Congress operates, I was reminded of a transcript I read of a radio communications of a U.S. naval ship with the maritime authorities off the coast of Washington State in October of 1995. It went like this. U.S. Navy to Maritime, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Maritime to U.S. Navy, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. U.S. Navy, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Maritime, no, I say again, you divert your course. U.S. Navy, this is the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Pacific Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. All countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Maritime, this is the Puget Sound Lighthouse. Your choice. <laughs> I'm sorry that time is up because I had a lot more to say. I think there, there's, a, there's a lot of work that has to be done if we're going to have a reasonable bankruptcy code. And I thank you for your attention.